This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, as you've seen, our title is taken from that last verse of Matthew 28. Well, not quite. For there in the authorised version and the revised version, he refers to the end of the world rather than to the end of time. In fact, the word here is the Greek word ion, and Strong says you should pronounce it ahion, according to him. And there's more than one way of understanding this particular word. So it seems from what Bullinger says in the Companion Bible, and then what Strong says in his concordance. Bullinger gives the phrase, unto the end of the world, the meaning of relating to the completion or the consummation of the age. And he suggests that that age was the end of that then current dispensation, that is, the dispensation given by God to Moses, which, although in its effects concerning the person of God, had ended with the crucifixion and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, did not physically end until the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. With that overthrow and the standing up of the abomination, of desolation spoken of by Daniel in chapter 12 verse 11 with that the mosaic end physically rather, physically came to an end now on that understanding the Lord Jesus would only have been with the disciples and the apostles for something like a further 40 years or so Bullinger qualifies that understanding by linking it to the commission referred to in Matthew 28 verse 19 go ye therefore and teach all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And he links that to a statement earlier um, in verse 20, chapter 24, verse 14. He's saying that as Israel did not repent, all, all of those things were postponed until Matthew 24, verse 14 was to be taken up. That's Bullinger's view. Now, Strong says that the primary stress of this word aeon is time in its unbroken duration indicating that it signifies a period of indefinite length indefinite duration now these two views do not seem to be in agreement the first suggesting that this saying of the Lord Jesus was fulfilled some 40 or so years later while the second urge is that it continues for much longer perhaps indefinitely in duration nor is the matter clarified by the other word used in this connection, that word always in, in verse 20. Always. As the Lord Jesus said, I will be with you always until. And this word always means all the days. So it could fit either, either of the two views we've referred to, namely the 40 or so years until AD 70, or an indefinite period of time. However, the two views need not be mutually exclusive. Both understandings could be acceptable, namely that in the first instance the Lord was reassuring his then disciples that he was with them until the end of the age, that they would not be deserted by him. But in the second place, he was telling those who, because of the preaching of his contemporary disciples, would become disciples themselves sometime later, that they too would not be left to their own devices. 
Well, how do we make that out? Well, first we recall to mind the Apostle John. We know he was still alive in AD 96, 26 years or so after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And in exile on Patmos, that small Greek island in the Aegean, received the apocalypse from the Lord Jesus Christ, 20 odd years after Jerusalem had come. So the Lord Jesus was with some of his disciples at least until that time. Then we consider the early aspects of the messengers contained in the Apocalypse, in chapters 2 and 3 in particular. The Lord Jesus sends messages to the eldership of the seven ecclesias in Asia, to what we would now call the arranging brethren, or the managing committee. These messages indicate that the Lord Jesus Christ was fully aware of their activities and was letting them know that fact. In chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation, he describes himself as holding the seven stars in his hand or hands, indicating that the eldership <coughs> of the seven ecclesias <coughs> was under his control. The stars representing the, the seven groups of all the believers, the elderships, whilst the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands, if you prefer, also in telling his hand were the seven ecclesias of Asia then. The messages are a mixture, as we read. Unalloyed commendation in respect to Smyrna and Philadelphia. Unalloyed condemnation in respect of Sardis, although she had a little bit of relief, and Laodicea. And then mixed remarks about Ephesus, Pergamos and Thyatira, a bit of both, a bit of condemnation, a bit of commendation. And these messages tell us that the Lord Jesus was acutely aware of the conditions in each of these ecclesias, and he also knew the constraints under which they were working, or some of them were working. In other words, he was with them, even though they might not always have recognised that fact they didn't see him. But he was there, he knew what was going on. And these letters tell us that. They, that's expressed the concern that he had for his followers at this time. And they included encouragement in respect of the areas where they were contending for the faith loyally, and warning where they were falling short. The beneficial effects of such encouragement and warnings were not, were not too long-lived. John Thomas, perhaps better known as Dr. Thomas, sees these letters as representative of the ecclesial world, certainly during the first 200 years or so from the giving of the Apocalypse to John, and really throughout history, and suggesting that we're now living in the Laodicea area. He urges, this is John Thomas, that by the early part of the 4th century AD, the apostasy which had been at work since the days of Paul, the spirit of iniquity, was already working, that was the apostasy working away, had so undermined the ecclesial world by the beginning of the 4th century as to essentially repress it. And that ecclesial arrangement became the Holy Roman Catholic Church, or the re religion of the Roman state by law established, established by the Caesars. But although the apostasy was by then full grown, it did not completely extinguish that small band, comparatively small band, of men and women who clung to the faith once delivered to the saints. Little groups of believers remained steadfast in their adherence to the truth they had learned despite determined and persistent attempts to eradicate them, 
to eradicate any challenge to state orthodoxy. State-sponsored Christianity, inverted commas, continues to be a dominant feature of religious life in many countries now, as a consideration of history shows and of contemporary events. But the Lord Jesus had long ago left them behind. He'd left those false believers behind, as a consideration of history was also shown. But he did not desert those who truly seek to follow his teachings, and who see themselves as his followers, his disciples, his brethren and sisters. Hebrews 13 contains a statement which originates in Genesis 28. Apostle Paul quotes it in Hebrews 13. And it's a powerful statement when I managed to turn it up. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 has this to say. Let your conversation, your way of life, be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have for he hath said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee that's the promise passed on by Paul as a reminder to the believers who were then Hebrews and others as well besides them at this time <clears throat> that was a pulling of a statement made to Jacob in Genesis 28 verse 15 as he was on his way fleeing from his brother Esau I nearly said Enoch, but it was Esau, wasn't it? His brother's Esau, on his way to Laban's household, his mother's brother. <coughs> Says this, I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And the previous verses show what had been spoken of, including bringing Jacob back to his place again. Now that promise was repeated to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 5. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And that follows a statement which, of what God would do, that he would be with Joshua as he had been with Moses. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. Now Solomon received a similar promise. This time it was expressed by David his father in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 20. Fear not, said David to Solomon, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee, he will not forsake thee until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. So there's three similar promises given to faithful men of old, and Paul refers to these promises in his exhortation to the Hebrew believers. He was exhorting them to have an honourable manner of life, be faithful in what you do, treat people properly, and so on. That would be beneficial to them, and it would serve as an example of what the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ were like, to those observing them and in that case says Paul the Lord God would never leave nor forsake them now in ages past we might add his presence would, with them would have been signified by the attendance and support of angels either singular or more than one after Christ's resurrection although angel attendance would still take place at times the Lord Jesus Christ would be more personally involved and we cited examples the story of Stephen. You'll know this well, recorded in Acts chapter 7, verses 56 and 59. As he's being stoned to death, and as he's not long from dying, Stephen says he saw the heaven open, and Jesus, the Lord Jesus, standing on the right hand of God. And then he died. And the experience of the apostle who was there when that happened, and was supporting those who were doing the stoning, his experience on the Damascus road 
was not dissimilar. In the latter case, we acknowledge that Saul, or Paul if you prefer, is recorded as having seen a light from heaven, exceeding the light of the sun at noon, and then hearing a voice. But the actual physical presence doesn't always need to be, be there in an open vision to be valid. Christ was there, Christ was talking to him. Paul may not have seen him. Those with him didn't hear the voice properly, but Paul did, and Paul knew what it was about. And later in that same chapter, it's, it's Acts chapter 9, the Lord Jesus reveals to Ananias that he, Jesus, was going to show Paul how great things he was to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. <coughs> so the appearance, either directly, visually, or just by voice, would be there to Paul. And he was aware of the help the Lord Jesus Christ gave in his life and in his preaching. As he acknowledges in 2 Timothy 4, verse 15 and 16. He says that when he gave his answer to Nero, to the, to the Caesar, all men deserted him. But he wasn't alone. He was there. The Lord Jesus strengthened him at that time. He was standing with him. Now we're not told how that standing took place. But suffice it to say that Paul knew that he was not alone. Knew that he wasn't deserted. And he recorded the support he got there for the encouragement and the edification of other believers down the ages. So we've seen from two places at least and projections of scripture that the Lord Jesus was in touch with believers for many years after his ascension to heaven. Appearing visibly to Stephen and although not maybe actually in person to Paul nevertheless in presence as shown in a bright light and a voice that he could hear and that he could understand. So what have we got so far? We can see that the statement, I am with you always, even to the end of time, is not precisely accurate. A better rendering would be, I'll be with you all the days, even to the end of the age. Although strong does indicate that, aeon does indicate time in its unbroken um, duration. But as a noun, meaning an age or era, it signifies a period of indefinite duration. So to understand his meaning, I will be with you until the end of the age, is a reasonable understanding. But what age can we discern, can we legitimately see in relation to this statement? We can discern several ages depicted in Scripture, can't we? I've seen four, I think. You may see others, but I can see these. First of all, the antediluvian age, which ended at the flood. That's number one. Secondly, the patriarchal age of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob which ended with the sojourn in Egypt. Thirdly, the Mosaic age which began with the Exodus and ended with the crucifixion and then the destruction of Jerusalem, Christmas Christ, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Ecclesial age which is now drawing to its close and finally, the fifth one, the Millennial age which hasn't yet dawned. <coughs> which of these is covered by this statement of the Lord Jesus, or could all of the last three be involved? The Mosaic, the Ecclesial, and the Millennium. Well, it seems to me that all of the last three are involved by the Lord's statement, else we're left with a vacuum concerning the involvement of the Lord Jesus Christ with believers following the end of the Mosaic age. Vine, in his dictionary, helps that understanding by referring us to Hebrews 11, verse 3. And there the writer Paul... I believe, writes 
Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And the word rendered worlds there is again that word aeon, which Bullinger and Vine both give in the plural as ages. The ages there, that same word aeon, and framed means prepared, whilst were not made means came into being by things which do not appear, but came about by the ordering by God of the several dispensations. And Bullinger adds that each succeeded, each dispensation succeeded the one before, but did not spring from its predecessor as the plant does from the seed. In other words, they were divinely ordered, they were divinely arranged, they were divinely ordained. But they, and they flowed one from the other, or one after the other. So we believe that the Lord Jesus was with the disciples in spirit from the time of his ascension until Jerusalem was destroyed in 1870, and both Stephen and Paul experienced his being with them. So too was he with John in 1896, <coughs> when giving him the Apocalypse. <coughs> and we also believe that during the years which followed the giving of the Apocalypse, he knew what his followers were experiencing as is shown by the seven letters to the seven ecclesias. But what do we make of the situation after those seven ecclesias and others, not just the seven, and others became largely apostate, following the obtaining of full imperial power by Constantine the Great? Well, there were small groups of faithful followers in various parts of the Roman Empire, often severely persecuted by those claiming to follow the Lord Jesus, but who modified their beliefs and their actions to accommodate the needs of the political rulers of the empire. Looking this up in, in one of my books at home, <coughs> it's interesting. <coughs> Little known facts appear when you start digging. History confirms that round about 312 AD, Constantine, we know him as Constantine the Great now, was one of some six emperors administering the empire. And he, Constantine, realised that with the six reduced to four, in consequence of the deaths of the two older princes, Maximian and Galerius, the emperor in Rome, a man named Maxentius, was moving. He was declaring that he alone was the emperor, the other three are merely my lieutenants. And beyond that, he began to prepare his men and gather his men for war to enforce his claim. And Constantine knew that and decided that he had to take steps to defend his own position. So he readied his own forces to protect his position as one of the emperors. And about the same time, he suspended and repealed, in certain cases, the edicts of persecution against Christians, granting existing members of the churches the free exercise of religious ceremonies. Now that had a profound effect upon many Christians. It caused them to fill the ranks of Constantine's legions and to go to fight with him. And some months, perhaps a year or so, were spent in this warfare. And in the end, Maxentius was soundly defeated despite outnumbering Constantine in a battle known as the Battle of Milvan Bridge. That bridge spanned the River Tiber. And in the attempt to get away, his defeated forces crowded the bridge and the emperor, their emperor, Maxentius, was pushed off in the, in the crush and being clad in some sort of armour, he drowned in the Tiber. And that was the end of him. Although most 
Christians that supported Constantine, there were those who opposed that association. They stood apart. They would not be involved. They felt that was wrong to the things they professed and they believed. And that earned them the hatred of the majority, which led in due course to bitter persecution of the true believers. And things moved on. The apostate church grew in power until some 200 or so years later, the Emperor Justinian, ruling out of Constantinople, recognised the Bishop of Rome as the chief ruler of the Christian church. A fact further enhanced in the early part of the 7th century, 606 AD is my memory, by another emperor, Phocas, called by Gibbon the... What do you call him? Something ruffian, I can't remember the phrase, what he meant, the undestrepable ruffian. He seized power himself, he was a centurion, and he grabbed power by killing the dead emperor. And he also declared that the Bishop of Rome was the top man, head of all the Christian churches. Now as the years passed, the Pope grabbed ultimate power over Europe, or that part which was not controlled by the Eastern Empire in Constantinople. When he did that, he then ruled as much as a temporal prince, as an emperor in his own right, as he was a spiritual leader. And those who sought to resist his claims were severely dealt with, often by execution in foul ways. And that situation continued for many years, probably seven, six, seven hundred years, until the Reformation in the 16th century, begun by Martin Luther, without breaks of persecution persisting for some years after that event. And sometimes the persecution taken up not by the Catholics, but by the ultra-Protestants, those who couldn't stand any, op any opposition to their views, and they were just as foul in their, their treatment of true believers as were the Catholics. But the French Revolution of 1789, and onwards, it started then, and it was in full flow until 1793, and then it moved into the Napole Napoleonic era, that broke the temporal power of the Catholic Church, certainly in France. They killed all the priests and the higher priests and so on, and grabbed all the property and gave it to the people as a whole and substituted a different state altogether. And incidents of actual persecution became much reduced, but not yet entirely eliminated. In the face of prolonged and persistent persecution of believers, how can we understand what the Lord Jesus meant by those words, I am with you always, all the days, even to the end of the age or the ages? It could not be that he was indicating that he would prevent them from actually suffering because we know that many of the early brethren, James, James, that's the Lord's own half-brother, Peter, Paul and Stephen, to name but four, were indeed persecuted and done to death by those in authority at the time. And we can find other examples of believers who were treated very badly indeed. So what did he mean? In Matthew 28... The Lord had said, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. <coughs> and power here is the word exousia, which Vine says denotes authority. And Vine goes on to say that it goes from meaning leave or permission to do something as one pleases, limited the freedom to that, from that to mean that of strength or ability with, what, with which one is endued, and then from that to the power and the authority, the right to exercise power. And that's what Jesus had. 
the right, had the power that was given to him by God, and he now had the authority. In other words, he was the controller of the world. He indicates that he is in control of whatever happens upon the earth. The eternal deity has given him that commission. And Bullinger, in commenting on this statement in Matthew 28, suggests that it meant that he had just recently been given this power, this authority. And so it suggests to me that the remarks which followed, I'm with you all way, all the days, even until the end of the age, should be understood in the context of the Lord Jesus then being in complete, complete control of all the things which are happening on the earth. In other words, that whatever might befall them, the believers, it will be under his control and it will work out for their ultimate benefit. Our nature is such that we prefer roses, roses all the way. We'd love it to be that way to the kingdom. Have a nice, easy ride through and watch these things develop with a sense of satisfying pleasure. But it can't be that way, can it? If the author of our salvation had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered, that's what Hebrews tells us, the word for suffered can also mean experienced. If that happened to Christ to prepare him, why should his followers be different? Why should we be different? Thus in his life, the Lord Jesus learned how to be perfectly pleasing to his Heavenly Father, even though some of the lessons that he experienced involved the complete abnegation, the complete surrender of self in elevating the Supreme Deity. He didn't register his own desires at all. He put them at one side. If that happened to the man who organised our salvation under the hand of the Deity, can we expect to be different? Can we expect then to learn how to please the Supreme Deity and yet be free from testing in various ways? No, we can't. Paul sums up this aspect of our probation in Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6 and points to the opposite situation in verse 8. In Hebrews 12, he speaks of children, sons, being chastised in preparation. In preparation of what? Preparation of glorification in due time. <coughs> and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children verse 5 of Hebrews 12 my son despise not the chasing of the Lord nor faint when thou art rebuked of him for whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth if ye receive chastening God dealeth with you as with sons for what son is he whom the father chasteneth not and then the opposite in verse 8. But if ye be with that chastisement, when of all our partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're not sons of God. You're something entirely different. That's powerful stuff, isn't it? So seen in that light, we can recognise that whatever experiences or trials we undergo, the Lord Jesus is in control and will succour us in time of need if we trust in him. Trust in him rather than in our own strength or our knowledge or will or determination now that's not easy to do is it especially nowadays when all around us we're encouraged to sort out things for ourselves you know what to do get stuck in and do it that's the sort of thing we hear on every, every hand but that's not what the brethren and sisters of Christ are required to do trust in God trust in the Lord Jesus in conclusion, I'd like to spend a little while considering that vital phrase, and with you all the way, all the days, even to the end of the age or the ages. 
The end of the age is the rendering given in several of the versions I consulted. A couple gave the end of the world, that's the authorised version and the revised version, which is not appropriate, for the word in Greek doesn't so indicate. And one, the Catholic one, the Jerusalem version, has unto the end of time. It's the only one I found with time being mentioned. As we intimated earlier, iron has its primary stress, time in its unbroken duration or sequence. So giving to the end of time, although not perhaps exactly accurate, is nonetheless not a capricious rendering of the Greek. It's acceptable. But it does beg the question as to what we mean or understand by this word time. What do you understand by time? Difficult to answer. When I tried to work out a def definition of myself, I found I couldn't. I found myself stumped. So I turned to the Oxford Dictionary I've got at home, which has this definition. Time. The indefinite continued progress of existence, or events and so on, in the past, in the present, and in the future, regarded as a whole. Now, I didn't find that particularly helpful, except in its reference to existence. At the end of time, or the conclusion of the ages, things will still continue to exist. The earth will be inhabited by a race of deathless men and women who have been redeemed from Adam's race and made, get hold of this, made consubstantial with the eternal deity, with the supreme deity, of the same nature, as the Apostle Peter indicates in Second Letter, Second Letter, Chapter 1, verse 4, where he refers to believers, to us, having been given exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. When I first came to understand that, 40 or so years ago, it blew my mind away. I couldn't get a grip of thinking that I might be elevated, might be, big underline there, might be elevated to the divine nature. But that's what's promised to those who are faithful. And that by thee, this, by these promises, great and precious, we might become partakers of the divine nature, qualified, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's tough stuff, isn't it? Powerful stuff. It doesn't mean to say that time will cease to flow, but that those men and women who have been found acceptable to Yahweh at the judgment seat of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will no longer be affected by time, as they were in their probation in their lives. The passage of time will neither be detrimental to them nor of benefit. It's just one of those things. And to listen to what I mean there, just consider a sportsman or a sportswoman competing in her chosen sport, whatever it might be. In the competition, the passing of time during the competition will mean the onset of fatigue. Gradually at first, maybe, but gathering effect as the game progresses. The player then becomes tired, no longer able to run as swiftly, to think as clearly, to react as instantly as at the beginning. And in certain cases, <coughs> he or she may not be able to complete the game with the course, whatever it might be. They may have become spent and have to retire from the contest. In football, of course, and in rugby, they can be substituted when they get to that stage. That's an example of the detrimental effects of the passage of time now that we experience. And beneficially, time can work the other way. Someone with an injury or a sickness, properly treated, will find that as time passes, they heal, they improve, they're cured, until they're back to normal. So that's the disadvantage and the benefit of the passage of time for us now, in our present situation. 
In the millennial age, those immortalized will neither weary on the one hand nor improve with the passage of time on the other. Isaiah 40 verse 31 summarizes their situation. But they that wait on Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Time will cease to be the severe restraint on the redeemed as they will stand above it as Yahweh does now and as the Lord Jesus does now. They stand outside of time, watching what happens, unaffected by it, watching what happens, and waiting for the time to intervene, which you know isn't far away. <coughs> so, it, so it will end in the same sense that they will not be constrained as now, but existence will continue, time will continue to flow, and then at the end of the millennium, when the second judgment shall have taken place, the earth will be filled with men and women who will glorify the eternal deity, and none other than those, and who will all share that glory, what lies beyond that, I do not know. The Apostle Paul reveals in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, that he had been granted an experience such as very few of them, if any, apart from maybe Jesus. Remember, he was caught up to the third heaven. That's not defined, it's just stated. I have my view about that, but that's a different matter. Given a view of what paradise would be like, it was so great that he couldn't relate to it. He couldn't pass it on. Not lawful to pass it on, he said. He did not know whether he'd been carried away body as Philip had been when he was whipped away to his altars, or whether he might perhaps have simply had a vision of the future. But it tells us that whatever lies in store, it will be beautiful, it will be magnificent, and it will be completely satisfying for those invited to share this blessed time. <clears throat> so we conclude by remarking, as we did this morning, the echo to echo the remarks of the Apostle John at the end in in Revelation when Jesus said behold I come quickly <coughs> they were remarks given to John as an encouragement to endure he which testifies these things that's Lord Jesus saith that's in verse 20 22 surely I come quickly amen and John's rejoinder which was immediate which was there from the heart even so Come, Lord Jesus. We echo that remark, don't we? He can't come quick enough, really, now, can he? We see things going wrong in every way you can think of. All sorts of good intentions suddenly become corrupted for one reason or another. And men are unable to straighten things out. We just wait for Jesus to come back again to put right the things we say so wrong on this earth. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, videos, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirtchristadelphians.org.uk.